Star Wars, The Han Solo Adventures by Brian Daly, read by Alec Bowles. Han Solo and the Lost Legacy 14. They had worked their way to a ridge overlooking the outer perimeter of the mining camp before Han discovered Bollocks wasn't with them. Han, incensed, slipped around a spire of rock for a look at the camp. I told that low-gear factory reject we needed him to monitor for sensors. Well, we're just going to have to be extra. Sirens began ululating through the camp. The travelers all hit the ground at once, but Han risked a peek around the spire. Now that they had been detected, information was more important than concealment. The mining camp was swarming like an insect nest. Humans and other beings were running every which way to take up emergency stations. Those employees trusted by Juok were being issued arms and taking up defensive positions. Contact laborers were ordered by their overseers to retire across the bridge to the isolation and effective confinement of the plateau barracks area. Han couldn't spot the sensor net he had tripped, but it was apparent that it had him pinpointed. Several reinforced fire teams were dashing to bunkers fronting Han's hiding place. Han saw that grounded near the Millennium Falcon and the gigantic mining lighter was another vessel, a small starship with the sleek lines of a scout. Suddenly, a response squad started up the hill to engage them. Two human males with disruptor rifles, a horn-plated Weiri scuttling on its six legs and bearing a grenade thrower, and an oily-skinned drawl, its red hide gleaming, lugging a gas projector. Half-kneeling, half-crouching by the spire, Han dragged the old Kelmark II around by its balance-point carrying handle. Knowing of the outdated weapon's powerful recoil, he braced himself before thumbing the firing stud. Blue energy sprang from the Kel's muzzle, tracing a broad line across the rock wall below. He was nearly knocked over backward by the Mark II's kick, but Chewbacca braced him. The rock sizzled, smoked, and shot sparks, then cracked, fragments and shards falling down slope. The response squad sought cover with gratifying freneticism. That should keep them off our necks until we can talk, Han judged. Cupping hand to mouth, he called out, Juok, it's Solo. We have to talk right away. The woman's voice, amplified by a loud hailer, rose from one of the bunkers. Give me that log recorder disc and throw down your gun, Solo. Those are the only terms you'll get from me. But she saw that we didn't have the disc, Bedour muttered. Didn't she guess that we couldn't get it from the lockbox? Han shouted down. We've got no time to debate this, Juwok. You and your whole camp are about to come under attack. He pulled back suddenly as a barrage of small arms fire opened up. Huddling back from it, the travelers clutched their heads in protection, while energy and projectile-searching fire probed the hillside. Rocks bubbled and exploded. Shrapnel and splinters flew while explosive concussion battered their ears. I don't think she's going to be reasonable about this, predicted Badur. She's got to be, Han snapped, thinking of what would happen to his starship if the robots overran the camp. The firing slowed for a moment, then, at some command they didn't hear, resumed even more heavily. Face it, Solo, 
Hasty called to him over the din. They want our hides and nothing less. The only way we'll get to the Falcon is if we can get to her while the robots are hitting the camp. When they're mixing it up with Juox people, we wouldn't get two meters. At that moment, the firing stopped again, and the voice called his name from below. Hasty was gazing at him alarmed. Solo, what's wrong? You just went pale as permafrost. He paid her no attention, but saw by Chewbacca's expression that the Wookiee, too, recognized the voice of Galandro, the gunman. Solo, come down and negotiate like a reasonable fellow. We have a great deal to discuss, you and I. The voice was calm, amused. Han realized that sweat was beginning to beat his brow despite the cold. A sudden suspicion hit him, and he threw himself up into the clear for an instant, just enough to ease the Mark II's barrel over the crest. The response squad was on the move, and another was rushing to link up with it. Han thumbed the trigger and hosed the barrel back and forth randomly. The heavy assault rifle was a product of Draw 3, made for the heavier, stronger inhabitants of that world, with its standard plus gravity. The Mark II's recoil forced him back a second time, but not before the play of his extremely powerful beam drove the advancing squads to cover once more. Spread out along the ridge, or they'll outflank us, Han ordered. His companions hurried to comply as Galandro's voice came again. I knew you wouldn't have died in something as foolish as that uneven ship-to-ship -ship action back at the city solo. And I knew the Millennium Falcon would draw you here in time, no matter what. You know just about everything, don't you? Han reposted. Except where that log recorder is. Come, Solo. I've struck a bargain with the delightful Juwok here. Do the same. Don't make things difficult. And don't make me come up there after you. Come on! What's stopping you, Galandro? There'll be nothing left of you but those little mustache beads. Chewbacca and the others had taken up sniping at the response squads, pinning them down for now. But Han was worried about the armed aircraft in the mining camp. The thought had no sooner formed than, scanning the sky, he saw a quick, dangerous shape swooping down at them. Everybody down! The spaceboat, twin to the one that had been destroyed in the city by the lighter, made a quick preliminary pass at the ridge, its chin pods spitting. Anti-personnel rounds threw out clouds of flechettes. Han could feel the craft's afterblast as it darted by. He raised his head to see what damage it had done. By some fortune, the first pass, being hasty, had resulted in no one's being hit. But they were badly exposed there on the ridge. The next pass might well finish them all. Han pulled the heavy assault rifle to him with a grunt of effort, pushed himself upright, and rushed out into the open on the back side of the ridge. At the camp below, Galandro conferred with Juok. Madam, recall your boat. I'll trouble you to remember our deal. He spoke with a hint of impatience, as close to emotion as he ever let himself come. So it was mine, not to be killed by air attack. Peering out of the bunker, she dismissed the objection with a wave of her hand. What does it matter, as long as he's eliminated? My brother's using anti-personnel rounds. The log recorder won't be damaged. 
The gunman smiled, reserving his retaliation for a more convenient moment. He touched up his mustachios with a knuckle. Solo is well-armed, my dear Juwak. You may be surprised at his resourcefulness, as may your brother. Han raced over the open ground, keeping one eye out for available cover. Though hindered by the weight of the Mark II, he adjusted it for maximum range and power level as he ran. He had thought about handing the weapon over to the Wookiee to let him shoot at the boat, but the Falcon's first mate had little liking or affinity for energy weapons, preferring his bowcaster. Han heard the boat begin its second pass. Juak's brother, Rawl, dove at the exposed fleeing man. Han threw himself into a trough-like depression in the rock, the Mark II clattering down next to him. The boat flashed past so close that Han was in the dead area between the gun's fields of fire. Flechettes burst in long lines to either side of him. Rawl flashed off, adjusting his weapons for a final pass. Han got up, braced the Mark II's butt plate against the rock, and fired. Still, the heavy assault rifle's recoil made it jump and turn. The boat was out of range before he had come anywhere near it, and now was banking for a pass that was sure to find its target. Han hitched himself around the stone trough and pulled the Mark II's bipod legs down. He had only one more trick left, and if that didn't work, he'd have no more worries about treasure, Galandro, or the Falcon. Resettling so that his knees and the small of his back were higher than his shoulders, he wrestled the Mark II around and rested it on the incline of his legs. He set his feet against the bipod legs, holding the weapon tightly to steady it. He squinted upward through the heavy assault rifle's open sights. The boat came at him again. He bracketed it in the sights and waited until he heard the first concussion of Rawl's fire. Then he opened up, bracing the bucking Mark II with hands and feet, holding it fairly steady for the first time. The boat's pilot recognized his danger too late. An evasive maneuver failed, and the heavy assault rifle's full force caught the light boat, tearing a long gash in the fuselage. Control circuitry and power panels erupted, and a gaping hole appeared in the cockpit canopy. The boat wallowed and shook out of control and disappeared in a steep dive, trailing smoke and flame. A moment later, the ground shook with impact. Roll! Juak screamed to her dead brother as she clawed her way out of the bunker. The boat had exploded on impact, scattering burning debris over a long, wide swath of ground. Galandro caught her arm. Roll is gone, said the gunman with no particular sympathy. Now, we will do this thing as we originally agreed. Your ground forces will encompass Solo's position and will force him out into the open and capture him alive. She wrenched her arm away, seething with rage. He killed my brother. I'll get Solo if I have to blow these mountains apart. She turned and called out to her enforcer the hulking Egome Foss, who stolidly awaited orders. Get the crew to the load lifter and warm up main batteries. 
She was about to turn from him when an unfamiliar sound rising over the fury of the boat's destruction made her pause. What's that? Calandro heard it too, as did Egome Foss and all the others in the camp. It was a steady beat, shaking the ground, the pounding of metal feet. The column of Zim's war robots appeared at a spot farther along the mining camp's perimeter, having finished their roundabout march from their mustering place. They came in glittering ranks, arms swinging, unstoppable. When their corps commander gave the signal that freed them from lockstep, they spread out across the site to begin their devastation. Juok stared in astonishment, not quite believing what she saw. Galandro, fingering one of the gold beads that held his mustache, tried to remain calm. So, Solo was telling the truth after all. Up on the ridge, Chewbacca hooted to the exhausted Han, indicating the camp. Han wearily moved to the ridge and joined his companions in looking down on a scene of utter chaos. Their own presence had been forgotten by the response squads, fire teams, and other camp defenders. The war robots, faithful to their instructions, moved to obliterate everything in their path. First to feel the battle machine's power was a domed building that housed repair shops. Han saw a robot smash through the dome's personnel door, while a half-dozen of his comrades set to work wrenching off the rolling doors. Pieces of lock slab gave way like soggy pulp, and a group of Zim's perfect guardians moved into the dome, demolishing work areas and heaving equipment, ripping down hoisting gear and firing with the weapons built into their metal hands. Heat beams and particle discharges flashed, throwing weird shadows within the dome. The building flared, pitted in a score of places. The robot's fire lanced the dome, probing the sky. More of them pressed in to tear apart everything they encountered. It was the same elsewhere in the vast mining site. The war robots, with their limited reasoning capacity, were taking their orders literally, devoting as much attention to devastating buildings and machinery as to attacking camp personnel. Whole companies of the war machines were moving among the abandoned mining auto-hoppers and land gougers, tow motors and excavators. The robots blasted and sprayed fire everywhere, making full use of their tremendous strength. One of them was sufficient to reduce a small vehicle to rubble in moments. For larger equipment, groups cooperated. Tracks were wrenched from crawlers. Whole vehicles lifted off the ground, their axles snapped, wheels ripped off, cabs torn loose, and engines yanked out of their compartments like toys. A battalion moved toward a barge shell that contained the latest shipment of refined ore. The robots tore into it, swinging and firing, wrecking everything they encountered and hurling the pieces aside. Meanwhile, Others engaged the camp personnel in determined combat, turning the camp into a scene of unbelievable chaos. War robots flooded through the operations site. They're headed for the Falcon, Han bellowed, then charged down the ridge. Badur's shouted warnings went unheeded. Chewbacca went racing after his partner. Badur took off too, followed by Hasty. 
Skinks was left alone, staring after them. Although going after his companions seemed a good way to ensure that he would never see the chrysalis stage, he realized that he had become a part of the oddly met group and felt acutely incomplete without them, abandoning good Rurian prudence. He flowed off after the others. At the bottom of the slope, Han found his way blocked by one of the robots. It was just finishing demolishing one of the bunkers, kicking the fusion-formed walls to bits and hurling the larger chunks easily. The robot turned on him. Its optical lenses extended a bit as their focal point adjusted. It lifted and aimed its weapon hand. Han quickly brought up the heavy assault rifle and fired point-blank, knocked back several steps by the sustained recoil. His fire blazed blue against the mirror-bright chest. The machine itself was driven back a step with an electronic outburst and was ripped open. Han moved his aim up to the spot where the cranial turret was joined to the armored body. The head came off, flying apart, smoke and flame gushing from the decapitated body. Han shot it again for good luck, and the Mark II's beam came only faintly. The weapon was virtually exhausted. But it served to topple the robot, which landed with a resounding clatter. More war robots were reaching that part of the camp. Chewbacca descended to level ground, trailing dust and tumbling pebbles, just as another machine came at Han. The Wookiee threw his bowcaster to his shoulder and aimed, but his fire bounced off the robot's hard breastplate. He had forgotten his weapon was still loaded with regular rounds rather than with explosives. Han threw aside the useless assault rifle and drew his blaster, setting it for maximum power. Chewbacca stepped back, removing the magazine from his weapon and taking one of the larger ones from his bandolier. Han stepped in front to cover him in a stiff-armed firing stance. He squeezed off bolt after bolt, deliberately and with great concentration, into the approaching robot's cranial turret. Four blaster rounds stopped the machine just as it fired in response. Han ducked the heat beam that split the air where he had stood. As the robot fell, the beam traced a quick arc upward. Defenders that were sufficiently well-armed were putting up stiff resistance with rocket launchers, grenade throwers, heavy weapons, and crew-served guns. Living beings and war machines were reeling back and forth in a storm of energy discharges, bullets, shells, and fire. Four robots lifted the reinforced roof off a box-like hut as the men defending it fired frantically. Using a chattering quad gun, the men's shots kicked up enormous clots of ground and blew away segments of the machines even as they attacked. More robots approached to join in. The crew, with barrels depressed, traversed their gun back and forth in a frenzy, taking a terrible toll. But even though several crew members used sidearms in a desperate attempt to keep from being overrun, the roofless hut was gradually outflanked and disappeared behind a wall of gleaming enemies. Not far away, a dozen of Juok's employees had formed a firing line in three ranks, concentrating on any robot that came near, and were thus far succeeding in preserving their lives. Elsewhere, isolated miners worked their way among the high rocks to exchange earnest fire with the machines, 
which couldn't negotiate the incline. But many of the camp personnel were caught alone or unarmed or were surrounded. The fighting was heaviest and fiercest there. The robots' implacability matched against the furious determination of the living beings. Humans, humanoids, and non-humanoids dodged, evaded, ran, or fought as well as they could. War robots simply advanced, overcoming obstacles or being destroyed, without any sense of self-preservation whatsoever. Han saw a stocky Maltoran run up behind a robot with a heavy beam drill cradled in its brachia and press it flush against the machine's back. The robot exploded, and the drill, exploding from the backwash, killed the Maltoran. Two mining techs, a pair of human females, had gotten to a land gouger and were making a resolute effort to break through the automaton lines crushing many of them under the gouger's tremendous treads, maneuvering to avoid their weapon's aim. But soon the fire of many robots converged on them, finding the land gouger's engine. The gouger was blown apart with an ear-splitting explosion. Elsewhere, Han saw a robot grappling with three Wairi, who had swarmed onto it, tearing at it with their pincers. The machine plucked them off one by one smashing them and tossing them aside, broken and dying. But in the next moment, the robot itself toppled over, disabled by the damage they had done it. We'll never get through to the Falcon, Badur yelled at Han. Let's get out of here. More robots were approaching, and to attempt a return up the steep ridge under fire would be out of the question. The old man proposed, we can withdraw across the bridge and take shelter in the barracks area. Han glanced across the crevasse. It's a dead end. There's no other way off that plateau. He considered blowing the bridge behind them, but that would take the Millennium Falcon's guns, or those of the lighter. The latter ship was herself under attack. A ring of dozens of war robots had formed around her, furiously firing while the huge cargo ship's engines strained to lift her off, her main batteries answering the robot's fire. Many of the robot's weapons were silent, their power exhausted, but more of the machines were gathering around the lighter every moment. Though the vessel's salvos wiped out five and ten robots at a time, sending them flying in heaps of tangled, liquefied wreckage, Zim's machines kept clustering to her, weapons, hands blazing, standing their ground. Soon, Hundreds were massed there. Others turned their attention to Galandro's scout ship, cutting swaths in her hull. The lighter rose unsteadily, her shields glowing from the concentrated fire, her heavy guns raking back and forth. Just at the moment it seemed she would reach safety, one of her aged defensive shields failed. After all, the lighter was an old industrial craft, not a combat vessel. The ship became a brilliant ball of incandescence, showering torn hull fragments and molten metal into the crevasse. The detonation knocked combatants, living and machine, both to the ground. Han was on his feet again in an instant, charging toward the Falcon with his blaster in his hand, determined that the same thing would not happen to his beloved ship. So was someone else. Across the battlefield, a ring of war robots was closing in on the converted freighter. 
preparing to demolish her, their arms raised and weapon apertures open. Others were shoving the wreckage of Galandro's scout ship toward the brink of the crevasse. Another machine, far smaller than they, blocked the way to the Millennium Falcon, seeming fragile and vulnerable. Bullock's chest plastron was open, and Blue Max's photoreceptor gazed forth. From his vocoder tumbled the signals learned from tapes shown him by skinks, amplified by the gear Bollocks had cannibalized from the podium. The advance stopped. The war robots waited in confusion, unable to resolve the conflicting orders. The Corps commander appeared, the death's head insignia of Zim gleaming on his breastplate. He loomed over Bollocks. Stand aside. Everything here is to be destroyed. Not this vessel, Max told him in the command signalry. This one is to be spared. The towering robot studied the two-in-one machines. Those were not our orders. Max's voice, directed through the podium's scavenged horn, was high. Orders may be amended. The thick arm came up, and Bollocks prepared for the end of his long existence. But instead... A metal finger indicated the falcon, and the command came, Spare that vessel. With signals of acknowledgement, the other war robots moved on. The Corps commander still regarded the labor droid and the computer module. I'm still not sure about you two machines. What are you? Talking doorstops, if you listen to our captain's opinion, offered Blue Max. The Corps commander stood stock still in surprise. Humor? Was that not humor? What have machines become? What kind of automata are you? We are your steel brothers, Bollocks put in. The Corps commander made no further comment, but continued on his way. The waves of robots had thwarted Han's effort to reach his ship. One, Stepping over the ruins of a crew-served gun and its slain crew advanced toward the pilot. Han was looking elsewhere, helping hasty fire blaster and disruptor shots at a machine approaching from the opposite direction. Han's shot scored the cranial turret. Hasty's, less practiced, sent its torso and limbs in a wide scatter. Badura was firing at still another, a long-barreled power pistol in each hand. Chewbacca stepped into the path of the oncoming robot and triggered his bowcaster. Its staves straightened, and the explosive quarrel detonated against the robot's chest armor, holding it but not stopping it. The Wookiee held his ground, jacking the foregrip of his bowcaster and firing twice more, this time hitting the robot's head and midsection. The machine came on relentlessly. Its weapon's hands were raised, but their power had been drained in battle. Chewbacca backed a step and came up against Han, who was still firing the other way. Then the robot toppled forward. Chewbacca, standing in its very shadow, would have leapt clear, but realized that Han was unaware of his imminent danger. The Wookiee shoved the pilot aside with a sweep of his hairy arm, but failed himself to avoid the tottering automaton. It struck him and pinned his right arm and leg to the ground. Skinks raced to him and began pulling ineffectually at the Wookiee. 
Another robot chose that moment to step over the one Han and Hasty had just downed. Since Hasty's disruptor was drained, Han moved forward, then realized that his blaster's cautionary pulser was tingling his palm in silent warning that his weapon, too, was spent. He whirled and called to a sidekick, then saw the Wookiee wriggling to extricate himself from under the fallen robot. Chewbacca paused long enough to loft his bowcaster into the air one-handed. Han caught it, pivoted, dropped to one knee, and pressed the stock to his cheek. He squeezed, and the explosive blast blew up against the juncture of the approaching machine's shoulder and arm. The metal limb fell away, and the robot shuddered, but kept coming. Han tried to jack the bowcaster's foregrip and found, as had the man in the city, that his human strength was insufficient. He stopped himself from dodging out of the way. Chewbacca lay trapped directly behind him. Badur, some distance away, couldn't hear Han's shouts for aid. Hasty fired at the machine with the only weapon she had left, the dart shooter, but emptying the whole clip at it served no purpose. Han avoided Chewbacca's efforts to swipe him out of the way and shifted his grip on the bowcaster, preparing for a last, hopeless defense.